Welcome to Truth, Lies, and Cover-Ups. I'm Tracy Brown, the fraud-busting body language expert. I've spent the last 20 years reading people, uncovering secrets hidden in plain sight to find the truth in crimes, politics, and billion-dollar business deals. And I want you to be able to tell whose pants are on fire, make better decisions, and build your bottom line as well. Get ready. Let's dive in. It's Tracy back with another episode of Truth, Lies, and Cover-Ups with super producer Alex. How are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Oh, yeah, for sure. It's always fun. It's always fun. I feel like I haven't talked to you a lot lately because you've been on uh, on your bike trips that you do once a year. Well, I don't want to hear it. You've been jet-setting all over the country. So I have. You, you've I been have. to Little Rock how many times now? Twice now. Yeah, and that is the pinnacle of jet set culture right there well and you know what else you know what well, else? they have I good did, mountain biking anyway they do i did some good mountain biking and you know what else i just booked an event in hawaii hello hey vi when is it september right on in maui i can't yeah. wait i'm pretty that'll excited. be great when's the last time you went to hawaii it's oh, been a while hasn't it it's been probably four years too long i love that it is way too long and how's your is your is your hula even up to date or are you going to get are you going to yeah. get shamed when you go back because your hula is just not limber like it should be? <laughs> well, you know, I'm a, I'm a member of a hula group over here. And um, and yeah, the Hawaiian culture is something that I'm fascinated by and very connected to and uh, and have a lot of respect for. So, yeah, and it helps me helps me do my body language analysis. Okay. I know, which yeah. means <laughs> there's, there's nothing left there for me. <laughs> <laughs> I got a question for you. Let's huh. shift gears completely. Uh-huh. What's the difference between a religion and a cult. Oh, I don't know. Anybody? Anybody got that one? I don't know. It's only me and you. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. Uh, the difference is time. time. Okay, explain. There's no explanation needed. The difference between the two is time. How long they've been around. You think? Absolutely. Or, or I, I thought a cult was more cutting you off from family and friends and things. You know, you could make the same argument about religion just as easily. But nonetheless, let's back up just a second. I mean, huh. what, what are some famous cults that we've had here in the Americas that we know of? Uh, you know, and, a, and a, a, a great one that comes to mind, obviously, was a, uh, a disaster was the Branch Davidians down in what was it, Waco, Texas? Well, I know. And guess what? I talked to Gary Nessner. So he was, what was he doing? He Was he negotiating with those guys? He was the chief negotiator in the Branch Davidian standoff in Waco. Okay. He, you think he was, he was in charge of negotiating with David Koresh. Whether you call it a, a cult or a religion or whatever you call it, he was the guy in charge of that. And it is fascinating. This talk is fascinating, uh, or my interview with him, because he um, there's this whole paradox between using force in using negotiation to get people out of those situations like mm -hmm. it is and it's such a heavy weight with what happened down there in in the amount of firepower available and then to show that but then but then rely on talking to get the get the job done like i mean i don't even know why they would pick up the phone inside the Branch Davidian compound for one thing, right? But he he talks about all of that stuff and and about how they just there was a lot of mistakes made. A lot you know, of mistakes. If, in, if in I were in the Branch Davidian compound and I'm looking uh -huh. out the window at basically heavy artillery uh -huh. stacked up and surrounding my entire compound there. Would you pick up the phone? And the phone starts ringing. I, I think I might answer it. I'd be Do like, you? I don't know. Are, you, are you the guys out there in the tank? Is that you? <laughs> Could you get the off the stuff. petunias, please? You're yeah. right in the middle of that flower. Just back it up 10 feet, please. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, he, he's, he was the one on the other end of the call. So, I, I mean, this is it's fascinating for for business. Any, I mean, this is one of the highest stakes negotiations that, that there is. And he 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 put, and he'll tell he'll tell us why everything happened. And mm -hmm. it was. It's should we just get to the interview? Because I can't even describe it. It's so unbelievable. Yeah, let's go straight there, because if not, I'm going to start talking about Uvalde, um, Texas. Yeah. We're going to not talk about that right let's now. Let's not do that. Yeah. Yeah. So we're going to stick to Waco. So All right, Waco, here we come. All right, we're out. It's Tracy and I am back on Truth, Lies and Cover Ups with another fantastic guest who, again, I am honored, even called me back Gary Nessner 
who is a retired FBI hostage negotiator, but not just a hostage negotiator. He created and revamped the whole hostage negotiation program. And, and I read his book, Stalling for Time, uh, My Life as an FBI Hostage Negotiator, which is fantastic. Gary, thanks for coming on Truth, Lies, and Cover-Ups. Well, it's my pleasure, Tracy. It's nice to be here with you. Yeah, well, um, it's nice to be with you. And um, let's let's chat a little bit because um, I got referred to you from one of your students who he didn't want me to, he didn't want to come on himself. He's a little worried about security. <clears throat> so you're pretty brave. <laughs> and because I taught a program at Kansas City ACFE, which they're all fraud investigators. And he's like, hey, I don't want to do it, but you got to talk to Gary. I was like, okay, cool. So here, here is, is, is what I want to lead with, and we'll back into some of your history and background and things like that. But you, and, and I know you can't talk about a lot of this because you're working on some TV projects, and, um, but you were involved pretty heavily in the Waco Branch Davidians situation back in, what was it, 90, I bet it was 92, 93? 93. 93. And here is why I want to talk about that, because I was there. <laughs> and I'll tell you why I was there because I, in a former life, was a, a bike racer. And, and before I was exclusively on the pro tour, I raced in college. And Baylor had a race in March over spring break, right about um, right about the time, well, exactly at the time that that whole uh, siege was going down. And I'll tell you what happened is I was with my mom and. Um, we were driving around and we we're like, we should go see about that Waco uh, situation with the Branch Davidians because we weren't we knew we weren't far from it. We didn't know where, where it was. So we go to the gas station and we're like, hey, wh where can we go see what's going on? And the gas station person goes, it's about five miles that way, because <laughs> I guess everybody had been coming in asking about it. So we got to this location, which because, you know, there's a lot of like kind of like bluffs in the area, I guess, or like, like bigger hills. And we drove up on this hill where all the protesters were. And there was all these American flags and people selling t-shirts. And, and one guy uh, was protesting. He just wanted Sabbath on Saturday. And, um, and, and, and you know, you talk to the people there because they've been camped there for a long time. And he goes, and the one guy goes, now this is the best David Koresh t-shirt you're ever going to get. <laughs> And we can look out and about probably a mile away, it might've been a little further than a mile. You could see these little, little, they look like little huts from where we were, but you know, close up there actually like pretty good size. And so you weren't far away doing your thing. So um, tell me like, what, what can you share about your time there? Well, I, I can share a lot. I mean, I, um, I talked about this incident quite extensively in, in my book that you just referenced. Um, you were probably closer to the compound than, than I was uh, for most of the event. We were several miles away at the Texas uh, uh, Tech Community College where we were uh, negotiating with Koresh. There were obviously FBI people and other law enforcement right at the perimeter, but we were doing the negotiations from some distance. So, I mean, it's obviously an event that, that captured enormous uh, attention, not only in the United States, but worldwide. So I had to smile a little bit when you, you were characterizing the T-shirt vendors and so forth, because there, there's a it's amazing how in such a short span of time, people show up with souvenirs and coffee mugs and hats and yeah. shirts and, and all the like. And there's protesters and there's pro and anti-protesters and there's. Uh, people with religious perspectives that uh, they want to share with the world. And so it, uh, you know, it's, uh, again, it garnered a great deal of attention, not only, you know, there were, there were folks inside who had come from other countries. So there was some uh, international media uh, as well. So here, here's my, my big question. And this, and this is for any hostage situation because <clears throat> Waco didn't end that well. They ended up setting themselves on fire essentially. No, it didn't. And, there, well, was, and there was some there. I, and I did not know the whole story it, um, from your book. The postman, like the, like the news crew got a tip that there was going to be something going down out there. And the postman that they stopped to ask directions was David Koresh's brother-in-law or some some sort of thing and tipped him off to what was going on. People ended up getting killed and there was this huge standoff. And 
my so one of my questions is and i'm trying to figure out how to put this just right has because there's there's you don't want to kill people right but you want to show force and it seemed like there was this there's this division of uh decision making versus the negotiators versus the guys who the fbi guys who just want to run everybody over with tanks and and so let me interrupt let me interrupt you don't don't lump all the fbi guys together what you know this started out as a completely different federal agency the bureau of alcohol tobacco and farm okay was investigating the branch davidians for illegally converting weapons uh, into semi, uh, from, from semi-automatic to fully automatic weapons in violation of law. There had been uh, a lot of local concern about the Davidians. There had been local media stories. Um, there had been child abuse allegations. So I mean, th- this entity and this crisis of sorts between government and the Davidians had been building for, for quite some time. So ATF decided to execute an arrest warrant and a search warrant. Um, and as you characterized, the, the Davidians got word that it was coming. Um, and they had prepared for this for a long time because part of David Koresh's ideology was that the forces of evil will someday come against us in, in Armageddon yeah. and the end times as prophesied in the book of Revelation. So, um, you know, that, that sort of uh, that, that ATF raid sort of validated Koresh's theological uh, lessons. Um, and then once the shootout occurred on February 28th of 1993, there were four dead ATF agents, 17 wounded, and six, I think, Davidians inside killed. So that then prompted um, the FBI to be charged by the Attorney General to come in and to resolve the conflict. And our goal was to resolve it peacefully and have everybody come out alive. Now, um, as you alluded to, there, of course, was uh, some tension uh, within the FBI based on the leadership configuration we had there, there were those, you know, operating in my unit that, you know, were focused completely on a peaceful negotiated resolution. And then there were others that felt the best way to get the Davidians to come out would be to increase the pressure and to basically force them out. Mm -hmm. And uh, as a negotiators, we call that the paradox of power, which is the harder you push, the more likely it is you are to get resistance. So we did have some internal conflicts within the FBI, and those internal conflicts did have an impact on the outcome. That being said, and I've always been open to the mistakes that we in the FBI made, but I think sometimes people simplistically in a black or white way want to say one side was all good or one side was all bad. But David Kresh was a bad person. He was yeah. a manipulative, narcissistic, self-serving, uh, lying guy, and uh, very hard to deal with. And uh, probably no one's ever been more challenging to deal with than I'm aware of in, in a law enforcement negotiation context. So we, we had our we, we had our challenges cut out for us. But, yeah. you know, then our ability to manage it as effectively as I believe we could have otherwise was, of course, hampered by some of these different internal uh-huh. viewpoints on how to proceed. So, I mean, it's a terrible American tragedy, I, even though there are some decisions that FBI leaders made out there that I strongly, vehemently disagree with and have criticized. Nonetheless, I know in my heart of hearts that they wanted to see everybody come out alive. They just uh-huh. wanted to go about it in, in a different way. And I think uh, uh, an approach that maybe was less informed with human behavior mm-hmm. and um, human interaction and with a lack of knowledge of what we were trying to do as negotiators. But, you know, again, it was a tragic day. Um, we got 35 people out the first half when I was there, including 21 children. I'm happy with that, of course, but I felt we could have got a lot more uh, people out, maybe more. I was relieved halfway through so they could take a more, I was seen as an obstacle to uh, to tactical intervention. And, yeah. and in fact, I, I was, I'm guilty as charged. And uh, I was an obstacle to that. And they replaced me and no one else came out. And then, of course, out of frustration, now that we're in the 51 days, the FBI decides to use the only tool left in its disposal, and that was to put in tear gas to try to compel them to come out. And mm-hmm. that triggered the Davidians uh, starting a fire that led to their demise. It's just a terrible, terrible American tragedy. It is. And, and it was it, as as much as it sucked everyone in to what was going on, just from a drama perspective on the news, um, it, it is it is a tragedy. And so let's 
let's talk a little bit about what came from that, because I think that's really important. And in for sure, reading your book, it, for people who are interested in the inner workings of things and in really a pretty good synopsis of what went on, I highly suggest that because I learned things that I didn't know. And I'm sure there's still a lot more out there that you probably couldn't write about. Uh, so this led to you being able to revamp some of the negotiation, uh, uh, maybe, maybe even the whole program uh, of, of how are we going to do this? Which the, which the question that that I had, the question that still rattles in my mind is, were there sieges before this? Because it seems like there's a string of this. Because you talked in your book about Ruby Ridge, and then you got into Waco, and you got into talking the guy out of his house. Um, in uh, it sounded like it was in the East Coast somewhere. Uh, and 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 there were several of these. And so what? Where where do things shift? Um, like there has to be like a playbook on this, and then pretty much the FBI just like threw the playbook away and said, "All right, Gary." all you go fix it. Like what, what's the, what's the before, what's the after? Can you yeah. talk about that a little bit? We, we may have to bring dinner in, but uh, yeah, it's uh, <laughs> I mean, uh, the concept of negotiations was really started by the New York city police department in mm-hmm. the, you know, the, the mid seventies. And they had a, a few situations, one particular to sporting goods store that went very badly. And they decided that they need to do something other than just sit outside and, be confrontational with someone right. and, and then go in and get them. So they came up with this concept. The FBI saw it and recognized immediately that it was a really a good one. And then we began to teach it um, not only internally in the FBI, but throughout the country and, and overseas. And we were able to throw a lot more uh, resources, our behavioral science people, our psychologists. We were able to gather data from around the country that helped improve the program and expand upon what New York started. It became uh, the gospel, and 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 you know, long before Waco, um, I, I would say law enforcement throughout the country pretty much relied on the FBI's uh, playbook on how mm-hmm. to do this, and it basically required you know containing a situation, de-escalating the confrontation, opening up a channel of communications, and eventually uh, you know convincing someone that it's in their best interest to let others go and come out alive. Now, I should also say. What we learned later is that only 10% of what we do is really uh, hostage situations. Those, um, um, you know, where, where someone has this very specific demand, you know, mm-hmm. Waco was not a hostage situation. A hostage situation is if you don't give me this, I'm going to kill this person to make sure. you give it to me. Um, that's it in essence. And Waco was not. They all wanted to be there. It was their home. They followed and believed in David Koresh. But when we have a non-hostage situation, which are far more common, but they can also be more dangerous in that the only thing the person really wants from you in law enforcement is to go away and leave them alone. Yeah. And often, as it was the case in Waco, this is simply the one thing you can't do. There's dead people here. I can't just say, well, okay, well, I'm going to go home and forget the whole thing. It, it doesn't work that way. But th- this was the approach we had taken at the time of Waco. I was only one of two full-time uh, negotiators in the FBI. There were 350 part-time negotiators spread around the country. Okay. And then this happened. So I, I flew out to Waco. I was out of the country six months earlier when they had Ruby Ridge. My partner was there. But at Waco, um, we employed the same approaches and skills we use. We try to create a relationship of trust. We project genuineness, sincerity, honesty. Um, We listen to what the person has to say. We acknowledge their point of view and their perceptions. All the good communication skills that, that you know from the work that you do. Absolutely. And, and so that's our bread and butter. We really copied very heavily on that approach. We made a major shift in the negotiation program in 1990. I, I moved it to, to where active listening, uh, counseling, communication skills became the centerpiece of, of what we taught around the world. And, you know, in 1989 or something, if you'd gone to a law enforcement negotiation conference and said, has anybody heard of active listening skills? People would have shook their head. Yeah. Now there is no nego- there are no negotiators that don't know about it. It's the bread and butter. It's the mm-hmm. essential skill set of law enforcement. So and it applies to both hostage and non-hostage situations. Be that as it may, that's the approach we took. What had happened, uh, I believe, is we had uh, the decision makers on the ground in Waco. Uh, I, I guess who didn't understand, embrace that concept. There was enormous pressure on the FBI. This was costing back then a million dollars a day. Uh, hundreds and hundreds of personnel, yeah. vast 
media attention, vast governmental interest up all the way up to the White House. So there's a lot of pressure on that FBI agent charged to resolve this thing, get it over with. What's wrong with the FBI? You're the best law enforcement agent in the world. Why can't you get this resolved? And that frustration can lead to, um, uh, you know, taking action that probably would be better off that you don't. Sometimes these cases just, not sometimes, they very often require a slow, thoughtful, patient engagement. And, um, you know, you've got to just persevere and and uh, take, take the slings and arrows uh, that come at you over the phone and you know, just deflect that and keep working on building a relationship and establishing some trust. And it's a proven formula. Mm -hmm. So what happened, getting back to your larger question is, um, you know, what happened uh, after Waco is we realized that while we had this in the FBI, this quite extensive uh, capability in, in the negotiation arena, we had really failed to train our commanders uh, mm -hmm. around the country um, in how this is supposed to work. We assume because somebody reached the rank of, say, general, uh -huh. uh, you know, we have 56 officers in the FBI and everyone's headed up by a, a, a general, so to speak. Uh, uh -huh. We don't use that term, but that's just the uh, military equivalent. So we just assume if you've risen up that high, you know how to do these things. And what we realize is they don't. No. So we had to, um, after Waco, the Onsen commander and the tactical leader were sort of encouraged to retire. And I got a promotion out of it. And <laughs> Not that was what I was seeking, but I mean, it, it was a, I, I think, a manifestation of the realization that the FBI knew that the negotiation strategy had been correct mm -hmm. and should have been adhered to. So the mission after Waco was training literally all the commanders in the FBI and all the senior management. This is how this works. This is why we do that. And um, so in that sense, you know, it, it brought about some much needed uh, updating People do ask me, oh, I guess the FBI didn't know what you were facing in Waco and, and uh, you changed everything dramatically. So, well, the basic, biggest thing we learned was to do it the way we did it before Waco, you know, and the way we had done it. Uh -huh. You mentioned other cases. Well, we've done prison riots. We've done right wing militia. I mean, there's uh -huh. just hundreds of situations the FBI had worked, bank robberies, uh, skyjackings. And it's not like we didn't have an informational or knowledge base uh, to draw from. So, you know, so we went back to that model as, as manifested primarily by a, a major siege in Montana three years after Waco uh, and with the Montana Freeman, an anti-government group. It lasted 80, 81 days, I believe, and yeah. not a shot was fired. Everybody came out alive because that time, Louis Freed, the director of the FBI, said to, to me, Gary, we are in no rush for this to be over. We want it done the right way. And we did. And we got everybody out. No shots fired. And of course, it fell off the media's radar Im immediately because there's no fire, no deaths to cover, no drama. But it's really a testament to uh, the reinforcement of what we had learned through many years. And it's, uh, you know, being re-embraced by decision makers. You know, organizations are, are made of human beings. And, uh, you know, I've always been proud of my career in the FBI. It's a, it's a great organization, great people, does great work. But it's flawed. It's human. It's, uh, you know... Um, who you're dealing with depends a lot on, you know, are you getting the best that we have or, or not? Uh, and, and so, you know, every organization has to continually strive to be its best and to perform at its highest levels. And when you're an organization like the FBI, we depend on the support of the American people to do our job. I mean, we are public servants. And if we lose um, their trust as we did, we had reputational damage after yeah. Waco. It's hard to regain that. It takes a long time, um, you know, and I think Waco will probably always be a black mark in the FBI. And um, hopefully our successes subsequently will help mitigate that. But I don't know that we'll ever go away. Yeah, I mean, it's stamped in my mind for, for sure. Just uh, haven't haven't been there and seen and seeing the hoopla. And of course, you see it on TV. And, and I am a I am I grew up in Texas, I grew up in Dallas. So I, um, you know, anything, anything that happens kind of down in that way, I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Uh, and, and so, which brought me to the Republic of Texas situation, because, um, and, and I have, I have some questions about the similarities between 
people who barricade themselves in or take hostages, right? Because there's got to be a profile for that. And, you know, the Republic of Texas guys have been around forever and they think that Texas can be its own state. And um, I'm a Texas history buff myself and I'm still unclear as to if that's uh, a, a thing or not, um, if, it, if it's legal or not. And it kind of doesn't matter because there's some people who believe to their death that it is and they are going to fight you for it. And it sounds like that this one character, uh, what was it, in 96 or so, 97? Yeah. 96, 97, uh, Richard McLaren. Yeah. So no. so he kind of broke off from uh, the main Republic of Texas, it sounds like, or they kicked him out or some such thing. And then here you are showing up in Fort Davis, which uh, is down, uh, and I'm looking at it on a map right now, down in the Big Bend area of, yeah. of Texas. And um, so Republic of Texas guys, like they are known to be heavily armed with their flamethrowers and their uh, just have heavily armed. And so here's the question, because you and, and, I, and I wonder what's changed now, um, because I guess I was a little bit uh, kind of drawn into this concept of how you guys capture the phone lines. Right. So it's the only the only place that they can talk to is you. And, and, and they can't get like, get a regular call out to order pizza or whatever they would do. So get, okay. So two questions, what is different now with cell phones? If, if, uh, if you know much about that and why do people pick up the phone at all when they know that you're on the other end? Well, as you mentioned, um, it's not that we're monitoring who they talk to it's we're limiting who they talk to. Yeah. Uh, we want them to deal with us and, and us alone. It, it's the same reason if, um, you know, you're in a business uh, negotiations and there's two representatives from the other company, they want you focused on one person who is the lead spokesperson for mm -hmm. them. Um, they don't want you shopping for who, who do I like talking to best? Uh -huh. Um, and if someone's like a Richard McLaren is able to talk to the news media, he's able to talk to friends on the outside, he's maybe able to call up a family member and give him that his last will and testament. Mm -hmm. These are all things we don't want. So we we try to capture. Uh, it was pretty much routine for the FBI. We with our technical capabilities, we pretty quack, quickly uh, capture the phone line so that when they lifted up the phone, they got us and no one else. Now, cell phones do indeed make that more complicated. And I was very fortunate that that was just really coming into uh, an expansive, uh, ubiquitous uh, situation mm -hmm. that it is now. But um, there, there's ways that we can also limit that and, uh, you know, knock out the cell service or whatever like that. But it's, um, you know, so much of this is dependent. I mean, negotiations now takes place over text messaging, over the internet, on, you know, uh, email. I mean, there's there's um, technology has has raised some new challenges for mm -hmm. law enforcement in this in this context. And, um, you know, uh, the, not the least of which I mean, it happened in, at Waco before we captured the phone lines. Um, when I arrived there that evening, I was basically the, the first FBI negotiator. Well, we had one locally there, but I, I showed up and they hadn't captured the phone lines yet. And there was even an instance where an FBI negotiator or a negotiator was talking to David Koresh and the operator, the phone operator said, I have a call from a current affair for Mr. Koresh. Will you take the call? And Koresh, yeah, the TV show. Yeah. And Koresh says, sure. And the, and the, and the agent, FBI agent, whoever it was says, uh, operator, this is a federal law enforcement officer. This is a crisis situation. Do not cut this line off. And they cut it off. Um, and, and they put him in touch with the current affair. Now, do we want, that person to again give his last will and testament to, um, you know, to be occupied in the phone with them for maybe an hour when we want to talk to him about getting some kids out. Uh -huh. So there's there's a lot of compelling reasons that the public may not appreciate. You know, often they think, oh, it's some sinister reason the government wants to, you know, isolate you and exploit you. And it's 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 not that. It, it's just plain old communication skill set. Uh -huh. You know, and um, so that's what we try to do. But yeah, Richard McLaren, you know. It, it, very uh, much even today representative of of this um, segment of our population it's very anti-government they yeah. they believe the worst conspiracies you know the the deep state the government's out to get everybody and can control you and and they they feel threatened uh, they see a changing america in terms of 
race, religion, yep. um, Belief, you know, yep. women, women in the workplace, the whole, the whole gamut of a rapidly changing society. And they don't like it. They're threatened by it. And, and it seems to attract uh, a lot of men who, and I do say primarily men, who um, have not been particularly successful in life and don't have solid work experiences or, or, or family relations. And, you know, this becomes their reason to exist. And, and it's, a, it's, a, it's a big problem and it's a big issue. Mm-hmm. And we've seen violence even today from people that uh, embrace parts or all of that kind of thinking. Oh, totally, totally. Like, yeah, things aren't going too good. It's really not that different from joining the PTA. Uh, like, like if you think about it, like, like the reasoning's kind of the same, right? Is is you need something to do, something where you feel like you have an impact. And so, uh, well, I know uh, I have a good friend where I live that is on the school board, and just in this past year, because of the COVID issues and the masks and the remote learning issues, I mean, the, these school board meetings that that in the past were non-events and nobody showed up and very little of controversy arose. Now they've become heated political battles every, every, every meeting. And it's, Mm -hmm. um, you know, it's people are, are stirred up and they're angry. And, um, you know, I, I think it's, it's going to be a challenge for our society to figure out how to, to deal with that. I think so. And so, so let's, let's talk about, um, okay. So why is someone like, we talked a little bit about the profile of someone who's going to do this, right? Things aren't going too good. They need to have some control. Why are they going to pick up the phone? Well, I mean, there's a lot of motive. There are, not everyone's the same. You know, mm-hmm. uh, they, they used to say in, in, in sort of a simplistic way that we deal with the mad, bad, and the sad. Okay, you know, it's true. The, I mean, the, the mad, the mad is the crazy. Uh-huh. The sad is the depressed. The bad is the career criminal. I actually look at it. I throw in an additional mad, and I call it not mad crazy, but mad angry. Mm-hmm. And I actually think mad angry is the most dangerous character we face. Uh-huh. The, the mad mentally disturbed normally don't create that many crisis events for us. They're, they're generally not that organized. The, the bad, the, the criminal, as you want to call it, um, comes in a lot of stripes and colors and variations, but most, mostly they're out in their own self-interest. So they, they tend not to uh, harm mm-hmm. others if they think it's going to come down and cause them to be harmed. Mm-hmm. The sad or depressed, I mean, that's the thing that cops, negotiators do the most. It's the, you know, the, the man who's depressed because his wife's left him. It's the, the, the girl who's going to jump off the overpass because she didn't go to the prom. I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm not making light of any of these things. I mean, but, but depression obviously is a, and always has been a major issue, sure. and particularly as a society becomes more complex. So that's kind of th- th- those general categories. So, so there's a whole, there's a whole gamut. But you know what? What, what I look for when I uh, am involved in a situation, thankfully not much anymore, yeah. is a sense of loss. The people we deal with, there's almost always a deep sense of loss, a loss of self-esteem, a loss yeah. of a relationship, a loss of a job a loss of respect, on and on and on. And that causes people to uh, often act in self-destructive, senseless ways, uh, you know, in contradiction to their, their own self-interest. And that's what we have to deal with as, as negotiators. We mm-hmm. have to show up and instead of sounding like Joe Friday and say, sorry, you better come out, this is the place, yeah. you know, we're going to come in and get you. You know, instead of that, we say, you know, uh, my name's Gary and I'm, I'm here to help you. What's, can you tell me what's going on? I, mm-hmm. I understand there were some shots fired in there. We're concerned about your safety. Uh, you know, you, you present for them something that they may not expect. And for a lot of these folks, they've had unpleasant history with law enforcement in the past. Yeah, so now yeah. you show up, you're the kindler, gentler, uh, good cop, uh, for lack of a better word. And, uh, you know, and you're there to not just tell them what you want them to do, but you're there to listen to what what is the issue ongoing in their lives that's uh, prompted this? And there's usually going to be some triggering event within the preceding 24 hours and then help find them an off ramp for that. You know, you, you don't, you get tunnel vision when you're, yeah. when, when you get in these crisis uh, situations in life, we all do. And you see, there's only one thing I can do. There's no alternative. And then, you know, as time goes by and your emotions settle down, you, you begin to think and, and behave more clearly, you know, Tracy, the, the, the graph I always use is the, the child 
playground teeter-totter. Uh-huh. And I think it's the most powerful illustration of human behavior I know, because when emotions are high, rational thinking and behavior down here, you just can't change that in the human condition. Right. So our job as negotiators is not to come up with a brilliant solution right away, but to first tackle and lower the emotion and watch what happens when that happens. The emotion comes down and what now we get to a point where people are thinking a little more clearly, behaving a little more responsibly. And then as a negotiator, I'll hear questions like, you know, Gary, I, I just don't know how to get out of this. Or what do you think will happen to me if I come out? Um, am I going to serve a lot of time? Will I be able to see my wife? You know, whatever it might be. When I start to hear questions like that, it validates in my mind that this person is now, contrary to what they have been saying, this person is now beginning to think uh, about a future and what his or her options will be. Mm-hmm. And that's for me, the proverbial foot in the door for a salesman. You know, now, yeah. now I can, I've slowly invested the time and effort to earn the right to say, well, you know, you might want to consider doing this or that, mm-hmm. you know, and, and I know you're uh, upset and you know what, I, I think we can get you help right now mm-hmm. and, and take you to this facility. The docs are great there. You've obviously been through a difficult time. You know, it, it's that kind of approaches mm-hmm. that uh, really make us successful. We have a success rate in negotiations. And going back to an early question, there are literally thousands of these that happen in the United States every year. Most of them you don't even hear about. They last two hours or less. Um, and, um, you know, we're very good with, with that high percent of success. And primarily we do it to keep officers safe so they don't have to go in and confront somebody in an armed fashion. But getting somebody to not engage in further violence is a, is a pretty um, rewarding uh, thing to do. And, and negotiators love that challenge of using those communication skills to achieve that ending. And, and you know, that, that's a, it's a pretty noble endeavor in, in my point of, from my point of view. But we're really trying to help people. And, um, you know, you see there's a, a spread around the country now of using more mental health people to confront mm-hmm. uh, people in the street rather than having the police officers who may not be as well equipped. You know, there's always a balance between is this safe? Is this person posing a physical danger to others? If not, then maybe we can use an alternative approach that that doesn't entail flashing lights and uniformed police. And yeah. you know, no matter how nice we are in law enforcement, no, how are, no matter how well intended we know we are, when we show up at the scene with all of our equipment you know, it's scary. You gotta, it's scary. You've got to put yourself in the shoes of that other person. Mm-hmm. What do they think? How do they view all of this? So, you know, I always think uh, my early advice is always think about how, while at the same time retaining safety, mm-hmm. how can we de-escalate this situation to lower that emotional content so we can eventually earn the right to, you know, to help this person find a a nonviolent solution. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I think that's super cool. And I love that because I I actually have a family member who's um, prone to uh, mental illness uh, outbursts, I guess. And yeah, having the cops show up does not help. Um, No, it does not help at all. Uh, While there's a time and place for cops to show up, for sure, like more focus on mental health is um, is something that I'm very much in favor of. Um, yeah, you know, if you got you got somebody running around a shopping mall with a butcher knife and threatening uh-huh. people, then you know that's not where I'm going to throw in my mental health counselor. Right, you know? right, yeah. But but absent those kinds of uh, you know obviously threatening mm-hmm. uh, activities, then we should at least consider less confrontational alternatives. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And so one of the points that you made, I, I think, very clearly through all of your stories, and, and I want to get some some tactics on this just so so people can use this in their own lives. Uh, and, you know, 99 percent of the people listening to this are never going to go out and negotiate a hostage or a threatening situation. But we're all negotiating all the time. And so how? Because because you had this this theme of okay we give you something you give us something, and uh, some of those were done in in actual written contracts like in the prison riot situation, 
uh, how are you getting people talking? How do you know what to give, what to not give? Um, tell, can you talk about that for a little bit? I mean, what you mentioned is quid pro quo mm -hmm. uh, bargaining. You know, you do this for me, I'll do this for you. And that's essentially the early concept that NYPD came up with. Uh -huh. And in uh, pure hostage situations, um, that still remains a good technique. I mean, if somebody's demanding a whole list of things and you keep complying and giving them what they want, right. it tends to empower somebody and, and um, makes them just want more and more and more and more. So, you know, we always have taught in those situations, you, you need to expect to get something back. Okay, I can send you in food. I'll convince my boss to let you have some food, but you're going to have to let one of those people come out. Uh -huh. So it's a, it's a, it's a quid, pro quo quid pro quo bargaining. And since people are there primarily get their demands met not to die, they'll typically go along with that. Um, now, you know, th that doesn't work so well in 90% of situations that are just emotional and they just want you to go away. And right. we call those very often uh, uh, homicides to be. In oh, words, really? They plan okay. on they plan on killing someone, but they haven't done it yet. Their girlfriend, their boss, right. their neighbor, whoever they're having a confrontation with. So they, they really don't need anything from me. David Koresh didn't need anything from us. So how do I convince him to give me something if he doesn't want anything from me? That's a very big challenge. And the only way, of course, is to create that relationship I talked about earlier, mm -hmm. where they view the negotiator as a honest, straightforward, a good person who's uh -huh. trying to help them not belittling them, not making light of whatever their beliefs are. But we start all of this by being a good listener. Mm -hmm. I mean, but, you know, using counseling, active listening skills, paraphrasing what you hear, uh, labeling the emotions that are demonstrated. You know, Stephen Covey, the business guru said, first seek to understand and then be understood. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a, a, a pretty nice phrase to describe, in essence, what, what we've always believed in that, mm -hmm before we can begin to have an influence of somebody, we have to demonstrate, not just say we understand, but we have to demonstrate we understand what they're going through and how they feel about it. And we demonstrate it by paraphrasing it, summarizing mm -hmm. it, putting in our own words, you know, you know, well, Tracy, you've told me this and you've told me that. And if I get it right, then you're saying he's listening. You know, he understands. If I get a little bit wrong, you'll probably say, no, I really wasn't confused. I'm just disappointed. Well, now I've learned the key word that disappointment yeah. is the driver in your behavior more than, than the other. So, you know, that, that's kind of how the process works. It's good, basic, simple human communication. And um, I always tell a story when I'm giving presentations on the road. Whenever I travel, I, I practice these skills in a bar, you know, because I, I usually stay at a hotel. I'm by myself. I go in the bar, I get yeah. my meal, have a glass of wine, and whoever sits next to me, young, old, male, female, doesn't matter, they become my hot, my target du jour. Uh -huh. And I don't mean this in a, uh, you know, in, in an aggressive or hostile way. But I said, okay, here's my opportunity. I don't know who this person is. I want to find out what I can about their background, why they're here, what they're doing, what they believe in. And it's amazing some of the wonderful people you meet. I mean, I, it, it was funny. I was actually in uh, Waco for the 20th anniversary uh, uh, event that I spoke at, at Baylor University. Oh, wow. That would, would have been 03 and um, uh, no, excuse me, 13, 2013. Yeah. And I'm sitting at the hotel bar and there's a young man there and we chat and he, as a hobby, he uh, walks a, a, a high rope, a, the trapeze, you know. Yeah. Um, uh, Slackline. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Whatever. And, and, I, and I'm going, Wow. I don't think I've ever met anybody. How did you get into that? Uh -huh. Well, we ended up talking for an hour and a half, two hours. He's showing me photographs and videos of him walking on this wire in his backyard with a balancing pole. And, and it was really fascinating. And it had nothing to do with, with my life or my work or whatever. But I took the time to invest mm -hmm. in, you know, hearing something that he was passionate about. And I learned a little bit about it, too. And I've got dozens of stories like that. And, you know, we should all try to do that. Now, I don't want to come across the audience. Uh, Gary's this perfect person and he listens all the time. My wife would just smack me over the head if she heard me say that, you know, but, <laughs> but, but uh, no, but we, we all should, you know, when you go to a social event, you're, you're, you're with your spouse or whatever. And uh, you know, you're at somebody's house and typically you're sitting in the kitchen like people do or family mm -hmm. room and you're 
you meet somebody new. You know, and take the opportunity to ask and try to understand and get to know them. And sometimes you say, boy, that was a weird person. I'm going to stay away from them. Oh, but yeah, I meet mean those. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we all do. <laughs> but other times you'll say like, you know, uh, I know you were in the kitchen, honey, but I was out in the family room. I met this uh, this couple and they are so nice, so interesting. Let's let's invite them to dinner, you know, or let's go see them. I mean, that's how relationships get forged. You know, they like the same things we do. You know, they like to take cruises or hikes or whatever it is that you do. It doesn't matter. And we all need to be open to that. And um, so, you know, I, I, I fail all the time, but that's how I try to, to practice. You know, and when I go to a social event, I, you know, normally here where we live, it's people we've met before. But I, I try to say, you know, I don't know so-and-so's, you know, wife that well. I've never really talked to her that much. Let me, let me, let me chat with her. And, you know, she used to be a school teacher. Let me find out what she taught and, you know, what grades and so forth and so on. And, you know, and I think um, we all ought to be thinking about that. Mm-hmm. Now, let's face it. There's times you're on an airplane, you're flying across the country. I don't want to look at anybody. I don't want to talk that's to true. anybody, mm-hmm. you know, and that's fine. There's nothing wrong with that. But there's other times where, you know, all you said, oh, we're going to land. Well, I've had such a nice time talking to this person. You know, hey, can, can we circle around the airport some more? You know, I mean, I, I, I'm enjoying this, you know. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we all should take the opportunity. And, you know, even the most in my former line of work, even the most despicable human being wants to be listened to, wants to be respected and wants to be treated in, in a dignified way. And, you know, we always say ch- listening is the cheapest concession uh, we can make it cost you nothing. It's 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 just an easy thing and a proper thing to do. And you know you'll get your turn later on when that person wants to know more about you. But your initial effort should always be let let me let me find out about you first. And that's the basis to it. I love that. I love that. So let's talk just quick because um, we got to let you get back to your day. Uh, let's talk just quick about okay, what you're up to now. Cause you have a pretty cool project going on. Can you share anything about it? Well, a couple of years ago, the Paramount network, uh, did a six part mini series, uh, on, on Waco. And it was in part based on my book. Uh, and the other part was based on a surviving branch Davidians book. And, um, it, it was, it was a good, uh, mini series. Um, mm-hmm. the, the great actor, Michael Shannon, uh, twice nominated for Academy Award played me and and that was great and interesting to be part of the set I I, I thought they did a good job overall there were some aspects of it that um, you know I didn't necessarily agree or would have seen portrayed that way but you know you learn when you sell your book you sell your book you know and yeah. <laughs> you can suggest but you don't control mm-hmm. so that was very successful um and now they're filming season two of that. And it's called oh Waco Aftermath. And it's about not Waco itself, but about the trial of the surviving Davidians, about some of the things we talked about, the rise of the mm-hmm. of the right wing. You know, Timothy McVeigh, along with you, was probably standing next to you out there probably with the was. T-shirt vendors at Waco. He was watching and that prompted him two years later to blow up Oklahoma City, uh, the federal building there. And um, that's covered in this second season as well. So wow. My character, again, is, you know, in, in throughout the series. And um, although this this particular season, everything he's portraying is is, is more fictional. Uh, but, you know, they'll probably do a, a third season on uh, Montana and the Republic of Texas, as you as you uh, referred to earlier. That is really an interesting and fun thing to be involved in. It's, you know, it's not part of my normal world or, or most people. So to see you know, 400 people on a film set putting something together. It's, it's pretty remarkable and fascinating. Oh yeah. Yeah. And then also, um, and that'll be out in February of next year, the 30th anniversary of, of Waco. Um, and then also at the same time, Netflix is doing a major three-part documentary on Waco. Wow. I do have a life beyond Waco, but it seems to be with the 30th year approaching uh, the, the, the topic uh, uh, that everyone's focused on. So that'll be a very serious, very in-depth, uh, documentary. I'm, I'm very much involved in that project as well. And I think it's going to be uh, very insightful. There's some, a lot of new material that, that they're introducing into it. So those two things have uh, kept me busy. And then there's my ever-challenging golf game and uh, chasing grandchildren children around. And, you know, life's pretty good. Wow. Golf. Yeah, I love golf. And um, that'll keep you busy. <laughs> For sure. 
trying to. As I said, it's a it's a never ending work in progress. It is. It is. Now, um, and, and you're doing talks out around. How how can people get a hold of you? Well, in my website, you know, uh, www.garynesner, you know, all one word, uh, dot com. It's got, you know, contact information there. It's it's got my articles and interviews and podcast uh, links and all that sort of thing. And uh, yeah, I mean, I still do some. Uh, I've done a lot of corporate speaking in, in the last many years, although COVID is sort of, yeah. as for everyone, has sort of slowed that down. And that's fine. But I still do like this. I do a fair amount of podcasts and, and interviews and so forth. And it's, uh, you know, it's enjoyable. It's, uh, you know, it, it, you don't uh, you don't pay the mortgage with it, but it's fun to do. <laughs> well, I am thrilled. Yeah, we know you're not paying the mortgage off of off of this one. Uh, <laughs> but <laughs> thank you so much. For coming on it has been fantastic to get to hear from you and um and i know people are going to get a ton out of this well i hope i mean i think um one of the premises of my book is that these lessons that uh, communication interpersonal communication skill lessons that we learned in the negotiation business have broad applicability in in life at, at home at work your family relationships whatever you know, and it all boils down to being more empathic um, uh, and listening carefully. And, uh, you know, all of us uh, have to work at this throughout our lives. And uh, there are a few special people I've known that are just so naturally good at this that I, I hold them in awe. But for people like me, we, you know, even me, I have to put some work into it to make sure that I haven't crawled off into my uh, my shell and, and uh, you know, not paying attention as much as I should. But we all have the capability you know, um, men are particularly guilty because we we tend, particularly in law enforcement, the military, we tend to be problem solvers. We, oh yeah, you know, our spouse particularly will come to us with an issue, and boom, first thing off our mind is, well, do this or do that, and boom, boom, boom. And in reality, very rarely is the spouse looking for that sort of uh, guidance. They merely just want someone to listen. And uh, you know, I don't think there's any scientific data to prove it, but I think women tend to be. Uh, better listeners, more empathic. Um, you know, there's a whole lot of gender ev- evolution sure. issues in that, I suppose. But you know, um, I think uh, I think we can all apply these skills and uh, probably help ourselves in life a, a lot more than we think. Wow, I think so. I think so. Well, thank you for everything that you've done out there, keeping us all safe and a few more people alive. And um, I can't wait to see your show now. <laughs> okay. Well, happy to be with you. Thanks for joining me. Make sure you subscribe to this podcast, rate and review it. I'll see you next time.